Welcome to the Midnight Library, where we delve into the darkest corners of the internet to bring you three spine-tingling creepypastas each episode. So sit back, turn down the lights, and prepare yourself for a journey into the unknown. But be warned, once you enter the Midnight Library, you may never want to leave. I still remember the blizzard in Willow Creek Trailer Park. I was one of the residents who had grown accustomed to the harsh winters of this remote mountain town. But that year, the blizzard was unlike any storm we had ever experienced. It was colder, fiercer, and it brought something with it. Something evil. The blizzard was unrelenting with no signs of stopping. The wind and snow were so fierce that it was impossible to see more than 50 meters, probably less. Even the strongest of the residents were struggling to cope with the extreme cold. The temperature had plummeted to dangerous levels, and our trailers were not built to handle such extreme weather. We rugged up as much as we could and hoped it would be over soon. But after five days, the blizzard had not died down. If anything, things seemed worse. It soon became apparent that we were ill-prepared for such a prolonged storm. Our food and water supplies were running low, and we were forced to ration what little we had left. Some of those in the neighboring trailers had already run out of food a day or two ago, and I, along with some of the other residents, had shared some of the little we had. To make matters worse, the blizzard had knocked out power and communication lines, and we were completely cut off from the outside world. The trailer park generators were old, but well-maintained. They should be able to get us through this, I thought to myself as I and some others worked on firing them up. It was a frightening feeling, though, knowing that we were alone and isolated. The park's next neighbor was only 2 km away, but in this blizzard. A few of us had decided to meet in Tony's trailer, which was one of the larger ones, to discuss what we should do if the blizzard continued at this rate. I think we're gonna have to try make it to town. Ain't no one is coming to us, Tony said, not even trying to hide his anger at the authorities for seemingly abandoning us. Don't be stupid. You won't even make it to the park's front gate in this, Margaret, Tony's neighbor, had replied. Tony took a sip of his hot tea, thinking up a reply while the wind and snow battered the side of his trailer. She's right, Tones. Hell, I live twenty meters from your trailer and I almost got turned around out there. Snow's too deep to drive and you can't see the tip of your nose in that, Mike added. Tony grunted, more in annoyance than agreement, but didn't say any more. We spent the next few hours together drinking hot tea and coffee and playing board games. We agreed that we would help each other out, and the others in the trailer park as much as we could. No one wanted to talk about what would happen if this blizzard didn't die down soon, but I am sure we were all thinking about it. I think I'm going to call it a night thanks for the tea, I said as I started buttoning up the top buttons on my jacket. Yeah, us too, Margaret said, standing up in unison with her husband John. With that... Mike, Sue, and Phil also stood to leave, nodding and thanking Tony for having them over. Then Tony's generator cut out. Sue emitted a small shriek of fear as the trailer was suddenly engulfed in thick darkness. Just as I reached the door, the power went out and I could see through the small window the lights in the neighboring trailers flickering out one by one in the midst of the blizzard, like blown-out candles. The outside was now nearly pitch black, and the inside somehow even darker. After a minute or so, a faint glow illuminated the interior of Tony's trailer home, as a few of the guests pulled out their mobile phones and switched on their flashlight. The light created flickering shadows around the room and failed to fully penetrate the corners, 
but it was still a relief nonetheless. Mike, who was next closest to the door, started to move towards the door and reached for the handle. No, don't, I said quickly, grabbing his arm and pulling it away. Hey, what the... He started to say, but stopped himself as he watched me lock the door and put my finger to my lips. Something's not right, I whispered. All the generators can't just cut out like that. We need to be quiet and listen. We all stood there in silence, listening to the howling wind outside and the creaking of the trailer. It was then that we heard a faint tapping on the window. We all turned to look, but it was too dark to see anything outside. Is anyone out there? Margaret called out, her voice trembling. There was no response, only the tapping grew louder and more insistent. It was then that we saw the shadows outside the window, moving and shifting in the blizzard. It was clear that someone or something was out there trying to get in. That's when Margaret repeated, Is anyone out there? Only, her voice came from outside the trailer. I spun my head to look at Margaret, and in the dimly lit room I saw the blood drain out of her face, eyes wide in terror. Someone, something had mimicked her voice perfectly. We stood, frozen in place, not making a sound. Is anyone out there? Margaret's voice again from outside the trailer. Margaret made a whimpering sound and collapsed into John's arms as her legs turned to jelly. Is there anyone out there? This time the voice had dropped pitch. It was still her voice, but sounded more menacing. Is there anyone out there? Bang. We all jumped in fright as something slammed against the door. Bang. This time the door buckled a little. Now more knocking and tapping all around us, every window, every wall. Bang! A third loud hit against the door. Tony whispered urgently, We need to barricade the door. Quick, find anything you can to block it. We sprang into action, grabbing whatever we could find. Chairs, tables, even the board games we had been playing earlier. We worked frantically, our hearts racing with fear, as the banging on the door grew louder and more insistent. Finally, we had piled enough furniture against the door to make it difficult for anything to get through. Tony quickly gestured for us to move to the back of the trailer, away from the door. We stumbled over each other in the darkness, trying to get to the back of the trailer as quietly as possible. The tapping and banging on the door, window and walls continued, growing more frantic by the second. We could hear other sounds now, too. Low, guttural growls and snarls that seemed to be coming from multiple sources. We huddled in the darkness, listening to the sounds outside, afraid to move or make a sound. Then suddenly it stopped. It was peaceful outside, except for the sound of the blizzard. As we listened, we could hear the distant sound of other voices, those of our neighbors. We cautiously approached the windows and peered outside. Despite the rapidly falling snow, we could observe shadowy figures near the adjacent trailers, contorting in unnatural ways. With their jerky movements and hunched postures, they beckoned to our neighbors. No, don't open the doors, I heard myself whisper, as I watched in horror as they did exactly that. Through the darkness and the snow, we watched in horror as the figures ripped the doors open and dived into the trailers, amidst screams of terror. No, I heard Margaret whimper as we were left to sit helplessly and listen to the deafening screams of men, women, and children echoing out around the trailer park. This was the longest night of my life. I can't say for certain when the final scream was heard, maybe around three or four in the morning. Overcome with terror, sadness, and exhaustion, we dozed in and out of sleep. One by one, we woke to an unusual stillness that had been absent for a week. The blizzard had finally subsided and the sun was peering through the last of the clouds. 
We took our time, but eventually made our way to the windows. Looking outside, we saw the park and all the trailers blanketed in layers of snow, and our neighbors, standing in the snow, staring at our trailer. Their faces contorted into a sinister, unnerving grin that betrayed a hunger rather than happiness. We fled the trailer park, certain they would chase us down, they who had replaced our neighbors, but they didn't. They just watched us flee, standing in the snow, with the terrifying grin plastered on their faces. We never returned to the trailer park. We abandoned the little we owned, and now all have a share unit two towns over. It is still too close for me. The local news never reported on the events of that week, at least not what happened to the residents of the trailer park. But the Weather Channel warns that another blizzard, possibly more severe than the last one, is on its way. We have stocked up on enough supplies to last us a month, even longer if needed. If you find yourself in the area when the storm hits, I urge you to do the same, and don't open your doors for anyone, especially not you. I recently moved to a small town just outside of Oklahoma City. I just graduated from college and was looking for a quiet, rural place to set up shop. The neighborhood I moved into was very calm and peaceful. It was on a very isolated road with only four houses and acres of farmland beyond the eye can see. All of the neighbors were very welcoming. As a freelance writer, I didn't plan on staying in Oklahoma for long or going outside my house much, but I'm glad to have moved into a safe area with people I could trust. Well, safe except for the weather. Growing up in the Midwest, I was no stranger to severe storms and frequent tornadoes. My neighbors have said they're so used to it that they practically live in their basements. Many said they immediately head downstairs once they hear of a severe storm, even if it won't be a tornado. I figured they were still recovering from the massive tornado back in 2014, and they were more cautious with their safety and their belongings. I thought it was pretty smart, but as I said, I didn't plan on staying for long, so I kept everything where it was meant to be. After a few weeks of getting settled in, there was a big storm on a Thursday evening. After a long day, I was lying on my couch watching the news. As expected, my television lit up with a severe thunderstorm warning for my county. I took a glance outside to see how bad it was. Lightning would strike every minute or so, followed by the usual clap of thunder. It seemed we were on the edge of the storm and weren't getting hit too badly. A few minutes later, a new warning came on. This one was a tornado warning for my county. I was honestly a bit shocked as I didn't feel the storm was too severe. I was already tired and didn't feel like getting up to go downstairs. I've experienced tornadoes and can usually tell when a storm will become more serious. This wasn't one of those times. Nonetheless, I got up and stood at the top of the basement stairs to keep an eye on the television. After half an hour, we got the all clear from the weather station. I took another peek outside. Sure enough, we weren't hit with anything besides wind and rain. I would normally wait in case of another severe storm trailing behind, but I decided to get ready for bed. After all, I didn't think it was likely that a greater tempest would follow a minor one. I woke up the next morning to the sound of sirens on my street. Was anybody seriously injured by the storm? I didn't think much of any potential damage. I was curious, so I went outside. To my disbelief, there were four cop cars and two ambulances a few doors down at the end of the dead-end road. Crime scene tape was wrapped around the entire house, and an entire forensics team was already there surveying the property. My heart pounded as I met up with some of the officers. 
They revealed that there was a family of four brutally murdered in their basement. I asked whether this happened during the storm. Some of them doubted it given the tornado warning, but how can four people be dead for more than 12 hours without notice? I could not see any signs of forced entry, nor were there signs of any type of robbery. Local news channels covered the case with many friends and other family members saying how nice they were, how well represented they were at church, and had zero enemies to their knowledge. Certainly not a great way to get situated into a new home. That same night there was another storm, this one more dangerous. There had been a tornado watch all afternoon. Sure enough, a tornado warning flashed on the TV screen. I didn't go to the basement. I just laid on the couch staring into space. All that was on my mind was the murder. Questions started racing through my mind. Who could have done this? Why could they have done this? How does a nice neighborhood become the victim of such horror? Was there something I didn't know about? I felt involved, although there wasn't anything I could do. A gigantic clap of thunder shook me out of my thoughts. I was feeling so much pity I didn't care to get to safety from this storm. I was in another storm of my own. Before long, everything subsided. Once again I went to bed but couldn't seem to catch any Z's until hours in. I had a miserable dream where I was at the family's funeral. The environment was completely gray, with attendees wearing black and everyone in mourning. Then all of a sudden everyone started feeling dizzy and dropped dead. I was surrounded by bodies on the floor. As I awoke, I realized it was all a bad nightmare. Realizing what happened the night before, I went outside again to check for any damage. Expecting to see a power line or two down, my heart sank as I saw the same scene from yesterday. Police vehicles, crime scene tape, and a forensics team. This time two doors down. Some friends of the family were watching the scene, a woman bawling at the sight her husband's arm wrapped around her. Once again I talked with officers on the scene. I asked what the situation was. He said that a similar crime was committed. He described the bodies as being stabbed beyond proportion. Several bones were broken, and one of them was nearly decapitated. As the bodies were being rolled out on a stretcher, I noticed blood seeping through the white sheet covering a body. A relative who found the bodies described to an investigator what transpired as she came to visit. I could even see some officers getting emotional. This made no sense. Two identical mass murders in my neighborhood, a neighborhood I moved to for tranquility. What are the odds? Suddenly it clicked. Both of these happened during major storms when the tornado warning alert came on. I looked into it further, wondering if there were any cases of people being killed during a natural disaster. Not much came up on the matter. I researched when other tornado warnings occurred. Nothing came up on the National Weather Service for our area aside from the one yesterday. I was confused. Was the warning today just a test? False alarm? Was someone taking advantage of the supercell to commit these gruesome acts? The storm today was more severe, but no tornadoes were spotted. That evening, the warning came on again on the television. I read it to see what it was. Surely this was a test or a tornado watch at a minimum. Nope. Tornado warning, clear as day. I went outside to my backyard. It was cool and windy, but there was no indication of a tornado anywhere near. I checked the radar on my phone. Not even a speck of green in my town. Maybe the National Weather Service hit the wrong button. There had to be some explanation. I called the local service about the possible error. They said no one reported a tornado, nor did the Weather Service see a possible tornado on the radar. Very odd. I looked to the horizon. That's when I realized. The two murders. Three doors down, two doors down. I got chills as I discovered the pattern. The neighbors spoke of practically living in their basement. 
some not even reading the television for the warning, just going underground when they heard the alert. I ran to my next door neighbor's house, rang the doorbell several times, knocked heavily, and even hollered their names. Nothing. I peered through the windows. Nothing seemed out of place. They usually left their back door open, so I bolted to the backyard. I saw that the television blared the noises of a weather warning. Once I got downstairs, I stumbled upon something I wish nobody else will ever experience. This scene was the most horrific thing I've seen. The couple lying face up, corpsed bodies positioned parallel to each other, unclothed. The worst part, they were completely skinned down, revealing muscle and tissue. It looked more like the devil's work than of a human. Realizing the killer could still be in the house, I ran out of the house to my property. I called 911 as I paced my porch. When the cops showed up, I was interviewed as the witness. I sat in the driver's seat of a police car with my mind racing. The cop asked me how I knew something was wrong. I debated with myself whether I should tell them about the television warnings. It seemed I was the only one who connected the dots. Nobody besides myself was getting those false warnings. Was I going insane? Is this all a messed up dream? All I told the officer was that they hadn't seemed to leave their house all day and I was growing worried. I didn't see any trace of a break-in. No broken windows, no foreign footprints, not even a speck of blood anywhere else. Was the killer still in there? Not a chance a person was behind this. Visibly shaken, I was recommended to a therapist to try and recover from what I saw and was told to try and keep it off my mind. Obviously, I couldn't. I grew frantic. There was no chance this is being passed off as being normal. I did all the browsing I could online for answers. I posted to various chat rooms to see if anybody else in the entire world knew what I was talking about. I either got no replies or just laughing emojis for the most part. Some people calling me mentally ill, a troll, a psychopath. I knew it was all real. It felt like a nightmare, but it wasn't. I saw it with my own eyes. Who is doing this? Why is it happening? Happening to me nonetheless? I stayed up that whole night feeling extremely sleep deprived, but the thought of sleep left me. My life flashed before my eyes when a tornado warning flashed on the TV right then and there. I looked out the window, clear skies. The sunrise was so unnaturally red, blood red. I knew this was it. This was no coincidence. Realizing this cannot be real, I decided to finally read what the extra information said below the headline. Normally I wouldn't read the graphic as it didn't have any additional information aside from what to do in the situation and where the warning was effective. The same must have been for my now deceased neighbors. My eyes widened. I felt like I was punched in the stomach. The cryptic message read, A tornado has been spotted in your area. Me. I am the storm causing havoc in your neighborhood. I'm the rain, the wind, the thunder, and the lightning. The safest place is no longer your basement. You're better off killing yourself than encountering me, hiding in your little crawl space. I have been sent on a mission from hell to put an end to all humankind. You will join me in flames. See you soon. Sincerely, EF6. Three doors down, two doors down, one door down. I was the next victim. I then realized I never even went to the basement during this whole fiasco. Scared beyond proportion, I grabbed the biggest knife from my kitchen. I slowly walked down the staircase to the basement. Each step I took felt like one more step to my death. I peered around the corner, knife ready to stab. Nothing seemed out of place. I surveyed my entire surroundings in the near-empty basement, trying to find a dark corner where someone could be hiding. Suddenly I was getting dizzy. My strength was faltering, heart racing, I dropped to the ground, feeling as if all the weight of the world was on top of me. 
a high-pitched shrill that sounded like radio frequency. All I remember hearing after that was a boom. An immediate flash followed. The storm was right on top of me. I'm a trained counselor who has helped countless drug addicts and alcoholics come back from the brink of death. I believe fully in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and the 12-step program. The full acceptance of these steps, and the meaning that comes from believing in a higher power, has created literal miracles in front of my eyes. I have seen homeless alcoholics who were months away from dying, shaking wretches of people with jaundiced eyes and wet brain. But after a year of AA and sobriety, they were some of the most confident, happy, and spiritual people I had ever known. They would give you the shirt off their back, and they constantly volunteered to save others from the brink of death. Some of them became staples of their community, devoted church members and deacons entrusted with large sums of money, and not one of them I knew ever betrayed the trust the community had in them after their recovery. AA and NA gave their lives meaning and over time sometimes gave them almost total inner peace. But during the recession caused by the global COVID pandemic, I lost my job. I became desperate and applied to hundreds of jobs, absolutely anything related to counseling or helping addicts. Then one day I got a call. Hello, may I please speak to Jonathan? The deep male voice said on the other end of the line. Speaking, I said. Hi there, Jonathan. My name is Winston. I work for a company that is seeking highly qualified counselors such as yourself. Would you be interested in coming in for an interview? He asked. While I was fairly desperate, I also knew that I had to ask the most important question for any potential job. How much is the starting pay, if you don't mind me asking? I said bluntly. Winston chuckled slightly. $80,000 a year, he said. I smiled inwardly, excited about the new prospect. Most of the drug and alcohol counselors around New England made far less than that, despite the fact that the job required a college degree and years of schooling. We made plans to meet, and I went in for the interview and was hired on the spot. I was to begin immediately. Winston was a mountain of a man, at least 6'6", with a shaved head and tattoos all over his body. His muscles looked like they had been sculpted out of marble, but he was also quite nice, smiling and laughing all the time as he showed me around the counseling building. As we neared the end of the tour, he brought me to a room in the basement where a sign had been posted on the door that said, Meeting in progress. Come in. He pushed the door open slowly and I saw a room composed of all men, most of them white. They sat in chairs that faced a podium at the front. A man was speaking there. Thanks to this program, I've been clean for six months now, he said sheepishly. He was a small man with huge glasses, balding brown hair, and a pudgy belly. I never thought it was possible, but with the grace of God and the help from all of you, I've done the impossible. I've stopped killing people. Women. I barely even get the craving anymore, and when I do, I call my sponsor, and he is there before I know it, taking the gun or knife out of my hands and talking me down before I can go through with it. It really helps because I know he knows what it's like. All the anger, the rage, the feelings of being so small. He's been there before and having someone who knows what it feels like, really it is a miracle. Growing up, if I ever talked about my feelings, my dad, he would beat me, put me in the hospital, even broke my nose a couple times. Another time when I was seven, he put me in a coma for a week, fractured my skull in two places. So I learned quickly to never talk about my feelings, never cry or complain. I just bottled everything up inside until it exploded. 
Nods of agreement and solidarity passed through the room. Winston led me over to a chair in the back of the room and had me sit down. I thought about what the man had said. It seemed ludicrous. Was he really talking about killing people to a group of fellow addicts? I had no idea what to think. I had heard confessions in AA from people who had hit pedestrians with their cars and left the scene without stopping due to them being drunk and afraid to go to prison, but this sounded totally different. The man finished his story, and the apparent leader of the group, a tall black man with a shaved head, got up in front of the group. Okay, thank you for sharing, Douglas, the black man said to Douglas, the pudgy man with the huge glasses. Douglas went and sat down. I looked at the name tag on the black man's shirt. It read, Hi, my name is King. King reached into a cloth bag next to the podium, pulling out some round circular coins that I recognized instantly as sobriety chips. And as usual, at the end of every meeting, we like to hand out chips that recognize people's lengths of sobriety, King said in a deep baritone, smiling widely, his face friendly and unassuming. For Leon, we have a ten-year sobriety chip, King yelled and everyone in the room stood up, applauding. A nondescript elderly white man got up from the center of the room, smiling sheepishly as he went to the front, shaking King's hand and taking his token. For Douglas, we have a six-month sobriety chip. The pudgy man got back up and went to the front of the room, taking the chip and sitting back down. And last but not least, for Anton, we have a 24-hour chip. A white man with a goatee got up and grabbed his chip. The first 24 hours are always the hardest, as we all know, King said, and the room murmured in agreement. One day at a time, though, that's all we can do. The meeting ended with the serenity prayer. Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And everyone began to disperse. I turned to Winston. Um, I'm confused, I said, and he laughed, a deep, rich sound that echoed across the room. This is a newer group, he said. A 12-step program for those addicted to murder, serial killing, spree killing, anything like that. We have found that, like with drugs and alcohol, prison doesn't really help reform these poor addicts. They don't get any of the professional or psychological help they need while incarcerated. So we started a group here instead. So these guys, they actually kill people? I asked, horrified. He nodded. Well, they used to, he said. Some of them have been in recovery for decades. Some of them are brand new at it. And this is what we hired you for, to work with these men, to help save lives, and to keep them on the straight and narrow. He nodded as if to himself. It won't be an easy job, surely, but that's why you're getting paid more than other counselors in the area. I'm sure you're up for a challenge, right? I had to think about it. I really didn't know if I was up for a challenge of this caliber. But then again, what other job prospects did I have? I needed the money to pay my rent. Otherwise, my 17-year-old daughter and I could end up on the streets. Sighing, I nodded. Okay, yeah, I'm up for it, I agreed. Blood covered the floor of the room in front of me. I looked from Leon with his white hair and wrinkled face to the barely recognizable mass of blood and organs on the floor. I'm sorry, Mr. Jonathan, he said, crying into his hands. I relapsed. I don't know what happened. I was totally fine one minute, then this idiot came out of nowhere, cutting me off in traffic and flipping me off for no reason. I had to slam on my brakes to avoid hitting him. I followed him really just to ask for an apology, but instead he started swearing at me and calling me all these horrible names and I just... kind of... blacked out. 
Tears ran down his cheeks. I walked over to him, taking the bloody knife from his right hand carefully. He let it go without a fight. It's okay, Leon, I said, patting him on his thin shoulder. Relapsing is a part of the healing process. All we can do is try to figure out what went wrong this time so we can work harder next time to prevent this from happening again. Ten years of sobriety down the drain, he screamed, falling to his knees, getting blood all over his blue jeans. I sighed, backing up to the entrance of the room and called Winston. Yeah, I might need a little more help here on the basement level of the counseling building, I said. Leon had a relapse and he's in a really bad state. Do you know who his sponsor is? After cleaning up the scene, I was talking to King and Winston about Leon. Why did he bring his victim here to the counseling building, do you think? I asked. They shrugged. This is where they're comfortable, King said, shrugging. This is where they have friends and can talk openly. Maybe they just instinctively come back here during times of struggle. I really don't know. Just then, my phone started ringing. I looked down to see the name of my daughter on the screen. Becky. I went out into the hallway and answered it. Hi, Becky. What's up? I'm at work right now, I said. She sighed. Dad, do you know a guy named Douglas? She asked. A chill ran down my back. Yes, why do you ask? I said, my voice rising in pitch. I could feel my heart speeding up in my chest. Something felt very wrong about this phone call. Um, well, he's here asking for you, she said. I gasped. Becky, get far away from him, I said quickly. Call the police, get the gun out of the cabinet in my room, lock the door, and stay there until the cops arrive. Got it? But someone else responded. Hi, Jonathan, a male voice said through the cell phone. You have a very pretty daughter, by the way. I think I'll enjoy this. Get away from my daughter, you sack of shit, I screamed into the phone. Douglas laughed. Then I heard a gunshot, and the line went dead. I started sprinting through the building, towards the parking lot outside. My house was only a five-minute drive from the counseling building, and I prayed I could get there in time. Please, God, let her still be alive, I wailed, running as fast as I could. I ran into the house, seeing a trail of blood leading from the living room to the basement. I gasped in horror. Visions of Becky's dead body shoved into a barrel or cut into pieces with a chainsaw flipped through my mind in rapid succession. I followed the trail of blood to the basement where the light was on, and what I saw there stunned me to no end. Becky stood over the dead body of Douglas. She was cutting off his head with a bandsaw whistling to herself, an angelic smile on her smooth, placid face. There was a drain in the basement floor and she let the blood flow down it as she cut the body into pieces, throwing each piece into a plastic barrel. Becky, my God, what are you doing? I yelled. She turned around, a look of happiness and bliss in her eyes. Just something I enjoy doing, Daddy, she said, smiling widely. He's not my first, you know. You had nothing to fear. Once I saw this loser sneaking around in our backyard, scoping out the house, I just went to your room and grabbed your gun, hiding it in my hoodie. He thought he was so smart, but really he was the easiest kill I've ever had. She laughed. I quickly walked over to her, embracing her in a hug. I'm just glad you're alive, I said, tears beginning to drip down my face, my vision turning blurry as a wave of emotions overtook me. The next week I was heading to work, Becky in the passenger seat. She was complaining, as teenagers often do. I don't see why I have to do these stupid groups, she yelled at me. I sighed. Look, you have an addiction problem, I said to her. I know you don't know it yet. Teenagers never realize it. Hell, even adults are often in denial about their problems, Becky. 
I just want you to go talk to these people, see if you can't relate to what they're saying. You said you've killed what? Four people already? She nodded glumly. I'm just worried about you, sweetie. I don't want this addiction to take over your whole life. You're far too smart for that. You could go to college, be a doctor or an engineer or anything you want, but not if you let this addiction ruin your life. She let out a grunt of exasperation. Fine, I'll go, she said. Will you be there with me, though? Always, I said. In a deep, hollow voice, he read, Thank you for joining us on the Midnight Library. We hope that our three spine-tingling creepypastas have left you feeling suitably spooked and entertained. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. Your feedback helps us to improve and grow our audience, so we can continue to bring you the best in horror storytelling. Until next time, remember to keep an open mind and a steady heartbeat. The darkness may be lurking just around the corner, but with the Midnight Library as your guide, you're never alone in the shadows. <laughs>